Connecticut last week and 10 days in hotels and <laughs> kind of tire you out and then this has been a hard week. But I just wanted to share something simple, a burden that I felt and, and uh, it's about modus operandi. <laughs> now I didn't say that. Sister Hen said that. She said mode of operation. <laughs> Modus operandi. M-O, we used to call it. Uh, just about what mode we operate in. Thank you, Jesus. And um, I, I wanted to share it, and I want to share something from my life to start with it, and I thought it would help some folks. And You know, I was, uh, I was in New York, and, and I, I was thinking about how things happen to us and, and how they can happen. And, and sometimes people say to me, well, you meet so many people when you travel. You know, how do you do that? And, and I don't know, I just, I guess it's mode of operation. You just make yourself available to God. And you say, God, what do you want to do here? You know, what do you want to have happen? I was sharing something about that in Idaho. And, and uh, I flew into, into Albany, New York three weeks ago, and I've been back and back and forth, but I, I saw a guy in the uh, airport. He sat down next to me at one of these plug-in places to recharge your computer, and he sat down. I looked at him. I said, oh, I'd like to talk to that man. I don't know who he is, but I feel like I'm supposed to talk to him. God, please make a way. But he was very much really into what he was doing, and then he left, and they called my flight. and So I... I um, I went to the flight and nothing happened and I'm sitting there and he's walking down the aisle of my flight with his wife. And he comes in and he sits down next to me. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> and he falls asleep. <laughs> and it's a short flight. <laughs> oh my goodness. He doesn't know I've got, I've got to talk to him and he, he doesn't know anything about it. And I think, God, please. Wake that man up in time to, that we can totally sound asleep and his wife is reading away and, and oh my goodness, I've, I've got to get to talk to him. I was, thought I'd nudge him, but that was just, and I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but uh, I'm there and finally, you know, it's, it's only from Philadelphia to Albany, real 45 minutes, but he wakes up. I thought, oh Lord, this time I said, well, hello. I said, uh, do you live near, you know, how do you do that? And you know, I was sharing how I don't want to get off track with this, but, but um, you know, it's like Jesus said, when you go to a place, if your peace goes out and settles on it, stay there. But if your peace returns to you, leave there. Matter of fact, shake the dust off your feet and get out of there. And I think that's as simple as it is, really. You can feel your peace, whether it settles on someone by how they respond or whether it returns to you. And... Um, he began talking to me. He said, no, I'm from Lenox, Massachusetts. I said, oh, really? And we began talking a little bit. And, and uh, he said, what do, you, what, what do you do? I said, well, I'm, I'm here doing some building work. And uh, what else do you do? Anything else? I started talking about cheese. It turns out he was a cheese merchant. It just so happened. And wine, cheese and wine. We got to talking. I said, well, you're from Lenox. I said, I have a sister-in-law from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. He said, Really? He said, what's her name? I said, her name's Eileen Nichols. Eileen Nichols, that's, she's my cousin. <laughs> I said, wow. 
What's God got for this person? Anyway, but I always felt like, you know, things that come natural to us, you know, and I was thinking about that lately and really about we don't have a whole lot of time in terms of being a busy people. Matter of fact, I don't think we've ever been so stretched. And a matter of fact, what we do, we're not going to be able to accomplish, accomplish the things of God unless if we're taken up with doing things that aren't God. We have got to make sure that what we're doing is it, we're in the will of God in everyday things and also in the big picture of our lives. And, you know, I began, do we have a bottle of water? Yes. I, be, thank you. I began thinking about my life and hey, many of your ages and really younger. I grew up in New Jersey. When I was young, I, 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 I read a few books that really got me excited about history. And, you know, I was like eight, nine years old or something. And, you know, it says that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And that we possess the gifts of God and the callings of God no matter what we do with them. Now, if we move in them and we find them and we find our calling and everything, well, that, that what they really do is they confirm the creator, not us. And we very much can move in the gifts of God and not be in the spirit of God either. Thank you, Jesus. But hopefully, we'll be in the spirit of God and move in the gifts of God. But anyway, when I was young, I loved history. Is that a surprise to anyone, considering the work I do? <laughs> I loved history. I loved reading history books. I loved going to historic sites. I loved walking. This is before I knew anything about the Lord at all. And I, I just, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, it was clear that not many of my friends loved history, but I really liked history. My teachers did. And um, matter of fact, I, I really read a book then on King Tut, and I really then loved archaeology and history. And, and uh, I really grew up loving archaeology and history, and it's before I came to the Lord at all. And um, matter of fact, I, I, I joined up with some archaeological ex, ex, uh, excavations in my town nearby, and I was like, history and archaeology was everything. And... Uh, I was 16 and I ran my own excavation one summer in my town, very historic town. Matter of fact, the newspapers would have headlines that says, Durkin Diggs. <laughs> and I loved it. And then when I was 17, something happened. And I got another crazy idea in my head that I was gonna do something entirely different with my life than what my inclinations were for. And uh, I wanted to become a doctor. Now where that came from, I mean, I had no aptitude at doing that. <laughs> you might say, well, of course you did. So, no, believe me. Math, science, biology, struggled through in high school, yet I had fixed my sights, like Brother Blair said, my rifled sights, on I was going to do this. And I made up my mind. I mean, contrary to my gifting, contrary to anything that I had done, I was going to become a medical doctor. And, you know, 
There's a valid place for that in the kingdom of God. Thank God for Brother Mark here. And I set my mind on that when I was in high school. So I, I then set my course in college to study biology. And it was an incredible struggle to get through those. Chemistry, organic chemistry, qualitative analysis, uh, comparative morphology, uh, endocrinology and microbiology. And uh, I mean, I put myself through this thing for like five years. I had to take a break at one point, it was too much. And didn't do very well with it, but I had it in my thick head that that's what I was gonna do with my life. And you know, what I'm saying is that we've gotta find out what the gifts and the callings of God are in our lives. And if we set our mind on something else that's not from God, we're, we're going we're gonna to maybe lead up with an unfulfilled life. I read this little story, I might have shared it one time about, reminded me of myself because uh, a few years ago I read it. and It was a story I think Andrew Nelson Little told that he was one of the southern agrarian writers and I think he's long passed away, but he wrote this little story and he said, there was this man living in a town and he, he was very successful at what he did. He just kind of went with the flow and had a family business he inherited from his father and married and had a nice family and he really had everything he wanted, you know, everything he can think of in life. And he grew older and he lived in the town where he was from and and as he grew older, you know, he was kind of a postmodern existence. His kids went to public school and they really didn't talk to him at all. You know, like 40% of American families, they say eat dinner together anymore. They didn't eat dinner together anymore. And his wife had another job and kind of another career. And, and his life was just becoming meaningless and empty. And he always felt like there was something else he was supposed to be. And his father lived in the town, his mom had passed away, and his father was in this nursing home, and, and every Wednesday he'd go pick up his dad and take him for a ride in the country, and, and he was getting older and older year by year, and he was realizing that, what's this all about? Accepting that, he became incredibly frustrated because he knew he had not fulfilled the calling of God on his life. I mean, inside, he couldn't even articulate that. And then one day, he took his dad for a ride in the country and on a Wednesday, every Wednesday. And they went for a ride, and, and uh, he's driving along, and it's just like all crashes on him. And he pulls to the side of the road, and he gets out of the car, and he walks around to the other side of the car where his dad is, and his dad is senile, and not really even sure where he is. And he pulls open the door and he says, I hate you! I hate you! Slams the door shut. He goes back around to the driver's side and he gets in. He's steaming. What happened to my life? And his senile father looks at him and says, Son, who was that man? 
And you know, that's the course I was on. I mean, I had that kind of relationship with my own dad. And it really was the Lord intervened in my life. And I came to God at just the right moment. And I was still in school. I was in school in New York, and I was still trying to pull this off, and I was still trying to do all this. And, and it really was, you know, I, I came to God, and I received the Holy Ghost, and I was baptized, and maybe a year later or so, Brother Joel, you were there. You remember it. You remember the conversation we had, and one day, Brother Joel asked me, you know, are you really supposed to do this? Is this really... God's course for your life, you know? And here I was, I, I was struggling with it, and I, I still, for, you know, my own image, I was trying to, trying to do this thing, and it wasn't the Lord at all, and I was very unhappy, and it was making me miserable. And, and then I just, you know, and what I, what I really want to talk about is what does it take to really find out what pleases the Lord in our lives, you know? And, and I, um, I listened to the brothers, and I dropped out of that career. I remember where we were sitting, Brother Joel, when we had that conversation at your house in Waldwick upstairs. Was there an upstairs? And I just opened my heart to it. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of this, that other story of Alexander Solzhenitsyn and how, you know, he was the Russian writer, and he... Uh, he was an officer in the army, and after, you know, many, many millions of people were by Stalin imprisoned because political reasons, and he was sent to the Gulag Archipelago, you know, the, the concentration camps in, in Siberia. And, and uh, he said one day we were, you know, he had been an officer in the army. I say this because he talks about the officer's boards fluttering on his shoulders. He said, one day we were in a, a logging camp, and it was winter. And we would just, 10 men would lift logs up and carry them around. And Then when they day, they said, everybody line up here. Everybody get lined up. And, and he lined up, and uh, we're going to choose crew leaders now uh, for the crews. And he said he's lined up there, and he's in his prison uniform, he said, he said, something rose up in my heart and says, pick me, pick me. He says, you know, they didn't pick me. He said, and I realized that while I was an officer, a poison golden dust settled down into my heart and got hold of me. He said, I'm a slave laborer. Sentenced to a long sentence in the gulag and the idea that my pride could rise up and say, pick me to be over the other slaves. What is pride, he said. He said, surely we must part from this. This we must understand. But I had so much of my, my pride caught up in who I wanted to be. Some of the most amazing scriptures to me are this one. It says in Hebrews 5, what? Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. I mean, 
To me, that's incredible. Doesn't that seem incredible? <laughs> that Jesus had to learn obedience and that he learned it from the, th he's God. What's, he learned it from the things he suffered? I mean, to me, that's incredible, but to me, it means that he so took on our nature. He so became like us that he had to deal with that will of a man also. Father, I pray that this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. There was some, he had to pray that prayer like he didn't want it to happen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he really wrestled with our nature. I mean, it says he, he took on our nature, who being in Ephesians, Philippians 2, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. How about this from the Old Testament? Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. Literally means to feed upon something to grasp for it. It's also translated vexation of spirit. All is vexation of spirit. And I came to the point in my life where I was like that man getting out of the car. I was vexed of spirit. I was a very unhappy person with what I was doing. Because I hadn't, I had grasped for something that was not the Lord. It wasn't God for me. And I had invested some of the best years of my life, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. I had invested those years into grasping for something. Doesn't the word grasping kind of have that feel, you know, to grasp for something? And it was by the grace of the brothers speaking to me and getting a different MO, modus operandi, mode of operation, like Sister Hen said, coming to a different place of realizing all the good that God had planned, but that my self-will was not going to get me there. Thank you, Jesus. And I want to compare that to another word. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. So what's the difference? What's the difference between setting your rifled sights on something and, and wanting it and, and reaching for it? Is there a difference between the two? 
And how, how are we going to ever tell the difference between them? How are we going to know? Who, I mean, how, what a noble thing. This young man wants to become a doctor. How noble. Everybody loved me for it. How noble. How wonderful. Encourage me. But it wasn't God. How are you going to know that the thing that you want, what is it you want when you're 17, 18, 19, 20, 21? What is the thing you want? You've got to know the difference. Are you grasping for something? Or are you reaching in God for something? Thank you, Jesus. There is a big difference. Grasping is going to result in vexation of spirit. Believe me. I was vexed of spirit when I came to the Lord. And it wasn't a moment too late or too early when I came. It really wasn't. I was, I, was, I was on top of the world in the world's eyes. I went to this big university. I had a wealthy family. I had all this going for me. And, you know, I competed for the best athletic club with them in the country at the time, rode with the Olympians on my, on our, in our club, and I was vexed of spirit deeply. I had a 22 gotten hold of, been on the road to where I wanted. I was the youngest person to publish in the annals of surgery with a famous surgeon that I worked with, world famous, who wrote all the textbooks. When it came to publish, he put my name first. It was my ticket to my career, and I was vexed of spirit. And it was miserable. It was terrible. I wasn't reaching for anything. I was grasping for something that wasn't the Lord. You know, along the way, one time I took a job at Christmas one year in, my, in this shop, and my boss said to me, I had nothing to do with medicine for once. I was helping a friend, and he said, uh, I heard my boss speaking, and he said, uh, uh, talking to another guy, he said, you know, I'd really like to get a barn from somewhere. And uh, I wonder if I could get barn wood from who, who would know where this is. And I'm listening to him out of my ear while I'm working away. And I go to him, I said, you know, Udo, Udo Romler, he was a German from, uh, he was an Austrian, spoke German. I said, I'll go get you a barn. I was 21. I'll go get you a barn. He said, where are you going to do that? I said, I'll go find it. Give me your truck keys. I'll pack up and I'm going to go get you a barn. <laughs> I took off to the mountains. I went door to door, farm to farm. You know, here I am studying biology and all this. I went door to door, farm to farm. I found a little barn. I tore it down. I loaded it myself into this truck and I brought it back to Udo Romler. I said, whoo, last time I'll ever do that in my life. <laughs> Can you imagine that? But you know, it really was the Lord. I mean reminding me of what I really love to do. And I had a great time doing it. I was not vexed of spirit when I was out in those mountains taking down a barn, believe me. I really, I remember it so well. I thought, well, that's that. So what is it? What is the mode of operation that we've got to be in? That we can know, God, am I grasping for something? Or am I reaching for you? I read a quote when I was thinking about this and just came across this little quote by Robert Browning in a poem. He said, Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp. 
or what's a heaven for? What does that mean? A man's reach should exceed his grasp. Or what's heaven all about? What are we doing here if we're grasping for things and not reaching for them? Thank you, Jesus. You know, I thought a lot about King David. You know, he, he grasped for things all right. He did. He grasped for a woman that, that was married to another man. He had the man murdered to get her. Is that grasping? He grasped. And Nathan, Nathan the prophet came to him. He said, you're the man. After he told him a story about someone who did, you know, something like that with his sheep. But you know, King Saul, you know, looking at two different kings, they're two different people very much, aren't they? You know, when Samuel, the prophet, came to Saul after he didn't kill the Amalekites and didn't, didn't get rid of all the plunder and he had saved the life of Agog, the king, and, you know, and, and Samuel comes to him and he says, uh, what's going on here? What have you done? He said, well, I did what the Lord told me to do. He said, well, if you did what the Lord told you to do, what's all this bleeding of sheep and lowing of cattle? You're supposed to kill all of them. What's happened here? He said, and it finally boiled down. He said, what? I was afraid of the people, but come with me up to sacrifice. Got to keep this image that I'm holding up. Keep it up with me. Please come with me. That's what I was doing in medicine. I mean, I was upholding the image. Let's make this look good. I'm miserable, but please, let's make this look good. Thank you, Jesus. But what did David do? Think about him. Think some of the things he did when God was speaking to him after that, you know? Think about Absalom, and he's fleeing from Absalom. Now, this is going to come down to the mode of operation right here, is what I want to say. He's fleeing from his son who's deposing him as king and trying to murder him. He's, he's escaping from Jerusalem, excuse me. And he goes out, and who was it was cursing him? Shemaiah. So here he is. He was king. His son is taking his place. And as he's going out through the Kidron Valley, I guess Shemaiah's up there saying, you man of blood, you're getting what you deserve. This is just what's supposed to happen to you. A curse on you, David. Then Abishai said of Zerari, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and cut his head off. <laughs> Woo. David, you know, he learned a few things. He really did. He, he wasn't like Saul, you know. He didn't go back and forth the way Saul did. But the king said, if he's cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has, has, has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery, misery and restore me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Wow. The king. That's his mode of operation. Hey, don't do that. It, it may be the Lord speaking to me, trying to, trying to change me. Imagine the humility of that, trying to do something like that. 
questioning something like that? How about this? You know, right after that, his followers rise up under Joab. They go out, they fight against Absalom, they kill Absalom, his son. Then they come back to Jerusalem victorious, having put down this rebellion against David. And David's in Jerusalem, and this messenger comes, and he said, Well, what what of the young man Absalom? You know, my son, what's going on? He said, Well, Lord, you know, well, well, king, you know, may may the same thing that happened to him happen to all your enemies. In other words, he was dead. What did he do? What did David do? He gave way to self-pity. He went in, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. (laughs) The people, they say, kind of slunk back into Jerusalem because their king was feeling terrible. Who comes along but his general under him? Joab. He said, what are you doing? He said, what, what is going, Joseph, what, what's going on here? All you're doing is you're showing that you, you love those who hate you, Absalom. And you hate those, these people who just defended your throne in your life, and you hate them, the people who love you. He said, let me tell you something else. If you don't snap out of it right now and get up and go out there and see the people, All the bad things that have happened to you in your life, king, are going to be much worse. What did he do? Got up, dusted himself off, and listened to his general. What was his mode of operation? A humility that he could hear God speak to him and get him on course in what he was doing. How about toward the end of his life? David gets the idea, I am going to build the temple for God. I'm living in this cedar palace. The the, the ark of God is out in the tabernacle in Jerusalem, and it's, it's covered still. It's in a tent. God dwells in a tent, and I'm in this palace, and I'm, I really, you know, I feel like I, I, God wants me to, to, uh, to, uh, to do this for him. The prophet, Nathan, comes in and says, Oh, king, whatever's in your heart, do it. So he's got a confirmation to do this great work. Nathan goes home. And God speaks to him that night and says, Now listen, David is not to build this tabernacle for me. He's not the one. Now you go back and you tell him that. You tell him he's not the one. Nathan, the next morning, goes to David. He's, you know, how do you think Nathan felt about this? He's a little, I think maybe he's a little worried to go tell the king that he confirmed something for him and he's about to take it back and he's not going to do the great work he thought he was going to do. He goes into the king. He says, last night the Lord spoke to me. You are not going to build the temple. A descendant of yours is, but you are not to do it. God said, you're not to do it. Do you think... David could have gotten upset at that, being told he couldn't do the thing he was grasping for. Then King David went in and sat in front of the Lord. 
he went down to the tabernacle. David said, Lord God, who am I? What is my family? Why, why did you bring me to this point even? What more can I say to you, Lord God, since you know me, your servant, so well? This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you. There is no God except you. Do what you have said. That was his attitude when told that the thing he was grasping for was out of the picture. That was his attitude. And then what did he do? What did he do? He then, well, God doesn't want me to do it, but how can I help whoever's going to do it? I'm going to go get all the stone together. I'm going to go get the wood from Lebanon together. I'm going to have it all sitting here so that whoever does get to do it, I can help them out. Thank you, Jesus. Aha! A man's, a man's reach should exceed his grasp. Or what is heaven for? What would I have done if I had stayed back there in my career? I would have been the man getting out of the car and cursing my father. And instead, what happened with my dad was in the end, we drew close together. We are in a time when we can't afford to grasp. We've got to know what is the will of God for my life. And God, when you tell me what that is, help me to have the humility to receive what that is. Help my reach, reaching, I reach for it, like Paul said. Help my reach to exceed my grasp, Lord. Help me not to have my own ideas about what I should be or my place in things. Or, but help me to be like David, saying, who, who am I? How did I, how did I even get here? How did you allowed me to be part of this? Oh, what can I do? How can I help? What can I do? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Or what is heaven for? What's this all about if it's about everybody grasping for something for themselves? Is that what we're part of? We're not part of that. We're part of people coming together and laying all that aside and saying, how can we reach together for God? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. God's speaking to us. Amen. I want to just take a couple minutes to tie in some thoughts. Might not even have to open my Bible. But I'm going to take us back to this 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14. Jesus described a kingdom and an inheritance for the saints that cannot be grasped by the carnal, ambitious man of the flesh. So the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, is an environment of perpetual frustration for those who are caught in only the realm of the ambitious flesh. Picture 
being in a scenario in a make-believe world where you see things that you want and every time you go to grab them, they become immaterial in your hands. That's how spiritual inheritance interacts with the natural man. It cannot happen. It will not happen. Peter thinks he can apprehend it in the strength of his own flesh. I will be faithful. Though all forsake you, I will be there, even to prison and to death. He promises. He's got his hands on it. But it is forever elusive because kingdom treasures, kingdom inheritance cannot be inherited by natural men. That's the thing. That's what Brother Kevin is showing us. The graspers in the kingdom will remain perpetually dissatisfied. But those who by the Spirit can reach, can grope after Him, perchance, not for certainty, but perchance, they might find Him, though He be not far from any one of them. For in Him we live, move, and have our being. I think of those in God whose faith and fruitfulness I admire. And I'll tell you something that marks them, all of them. Think of the strong men of God in the first generation of this fellowship. And something that marks them is a certain lack of confidence in the flesh. An awareness that reminds them constantly of the tenuous nature of the gift of God, of the will of God in their life, of the promise's fulfillment. They are not people who have it in the bag. They are people who are still standing in awe that this which we have our hands on, this which we have our eyes on, our ears can hear. Contrast that scripture. This that we have, it, it's, it's present for us. We could lose it still. Contrast that scripture that A.B. started the meeting with, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. I want you to contrast those verses with a very opposite passage in the beginning of 1 John. How does it go there? That which our eyes have seen our ears have heard, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. <laughs> it's like the exact opposite. This is what we're still proclaiming. Idolatry is when we get our hands, we grasp for something and we think we've achieved it, but it's actually the making of man. That's what idolatry is. Remember when he called him out of Egypt, he said, you will not go empty-handed, Exodus 3. You will not go empty-handed, Exodus 11. 
But you will ask the Egyptians and they will give you of their wealth. But the plunder of Egypt is not the inheritance of the promised land. Amen? God has spoken to his church. He has shown us you have a purpose. You have an inheritance to apprehend. And he needs, he knows that we need some gold from Egypt for that purpose. But the plunder of Egypt is not the inheritance. We can forget the promised land while pursuing the plunder of Egypt. But what happened with that plunder when they began to create something that they could get their hands on? They didn't like the delay. They didn't like the lag. They said, what has become of this man, Moses? And they used the same words God had spoken through Moses. He said, take the gold from the children of Israel and put it on your sons and daughters. Then it says, Aaron said, take the gold off of your sons and daughters and bring it to me. It says he fashioned and made, fashioned and made a golden calf. And he put something concrete. Something tangible. Something they could grasp. He put it at their fingertips. And he said, this, these are the gods that have brought you out of Egypt. I want to just draw this out for you. Necessary wealth on the way out of Egypt that was intended for building the tabernacle and temple became an idol. These are the gods that got you out of Egypt. What made the difference? What got you out of Egypt? Was it supernatural wisdom? Was it divine power? Was it weapons of warfare that are not carnal but mighty through God? Or was it the almighty dollar? Was it money? Was it wealth? He was suggesting to them that materialism was what got him out of Egypt. You used to be a slave, but look how your life has changed. Materialism has made you a happy person. Materialism got you out of slavery. Materialism got you out of Egypt. Here are the gods. Worship them. It's the same thing Jeroboam did when he felt competitive toward Jerusalem. Rehoboam was less pleasing in the eyes of God, and Jeroboam was the one who was going to pick up the thwarted Davidic line. But he got competitive and he didn't want to share. And so he said, let's make some gods. And he told them the exact same thing. He made golden calves and he said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Worship them. He said, you've gone to Jerusalem long enough. Now let's worship these gods. And Stephen, when he gives his testimony, says that when they did this, God turned away and gave them over to the gods whose images they were duplicating in that graven calf. He gave them over to the false, to the demons. And 1 Corinthians 10 refers to the same event, event and he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And he quotes verbatim from Exodus 32. 
the event of the golden calf. Amen. So what I'm trying to tell you is that there is a real kingdom. But according to what Brother Kevin is speaking to us tonight, that kingdom cannot be grasped with the man of the flesh. So either you're going to be frustrated by finding God's promises forever elusive, or you're going to become a spiritual man. You're going to begin to move in the spirit, think in the spirit, pray in the spirit. We don't even know how to pray. We have to yield to the Holy Spirit so that he can even pray through us with groanings too deep for words. I don't want us to think that we have found the promised land when we filled our pockets with the plunder. Yes, God's had us plundering Egypt for a while, but this isn't the promised land. The promised land is the kingdom of the son of his love. It's where Christ is reigning. How? By the Spirit. We know that the ultimate inheritance is in heaven. Hebrews 5 tells us that, right? Heavenly, the inheritance that is in heaven, he says. 1 Peter 4, he says that he's going to give us an incorruptible inheritance in heaven. We know that's the ultimate inheritance. But are we penniless in the Spirit? Are we orphans without treasure, without power? Or has God given us a deposit? Has he given us a little portion, a little outpouring that is surety for that which is coming? Amen? Yes, he has. He says he has given us the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 23. Amen? He says he has given us the seal and the deposit of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, amen, in Colossians 1.12. The, the reality of the inheritance that we can have here and now is in the Spirit. That's it. If we don't have a life in the Spirit, we are disinherited bastards, spiritually speaking. But if we do, then the things which eye cannot see and ear cannot hear and cannot even occur to the mind or heart of man God will reveal them to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches and appraises all things, even the deep things of God. Thank you, Jesus. And no one knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of a man, but even so, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. But we have the mind of Christ because we have the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, God. Now I want to bring this down real concrete, and then I'll be done. I was blessed to hear of some brothers and sisters from one of our communities, not here locally, but one of our other communities who traveled overseas to yet a different community, one of our fellowships. And they came back and they brought a great report. And they said, we saw a vulnerability amongst the people a simplicity of life, of possessions, of purpose that provoked us to jealousy. A mature brother, married, successful business, he said it was probably the most life-changing two weeks of my life. 
going over to help an overseas community. The Bible tells us that the poor are rich in faith. You got to be careful because those necessary jewels and bits of gold which God called you to collect from Egypt for the purpose of his temple, they can become golden calves. They can start to become, in your mind, the gods that really got you out of the problem. They are not the gods that brought you out of Egypt. He brought you out with an outstretched hand, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He brought you out by the word of his power. He brought you out by a pillar of fire, the move of the spirit. Amen. And I feel the Lord putting a warning on me and on us at this time and saying, if you think you can grasp it, be careful that it's not a golden calf. Because it's only through the spirit that we can really grasp the kingdom that we are called to receive. Amen. Is that kingdom an individual thing? Or is it an inheritance that is found in the saints, as he says in Colossians and Ephesians and Acts, both. Acts 20 and Acts 26, both. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is within you. But that leaves it a question, is it an individual thing? Is it within you? A better translation is the kingdom of God is among you. Your literal will render it the kingdom of God is among you, plural. It's not just within this individual. There's a sense in which that's true, but it's among. You would never say something is among Gabe. Can we agree on that? But you might say something is among Gabe, Brother Kevin, and Matthew. Do you understand? Among is a verb in the Greek that has to entail more than one person, like Jesus suggested, whenever two or three, he didn't say one, two, or three, he said two or three are gathered. Forsake not the gathering of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, especially as you see that day approaching. Amen. Because if there's no gathering, if there's no collection, then there can be no possibility of a present kingdom. Amen. And then Paul says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the only dimension where any of it can be discerned, enjoyed, or appreciated, the realm of the Holy Spirit. Don't you feel God speaking to us tonight? Hallelujah. Lord, I may have some plunder in my pocket, but I want the kingdom. I want the inheritance. Amen. I don't want to grasp for the wind. Amen. I want to reach for the purpose, the eternal purpose you've predestined in Christ. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You know, that's an incredible scene there when Moses comes down from the mountain. Because right before it, it says that they didn't know where Moses went to. They wanted something to worship. They brought him the gold. It says he took a tool and he fashioned the golden calf for them and they worshiped it. Moses comes down from the mountain. He goes to Aaron. He said, Aaron, what did you do? He said, I don't know what happened. He said, I took this gold. 
I threw it in the fire, and this golden calf came out. Did he lie? I don't think he lied. Yeah. He revealed a deception. A deception. That's what accompanies that. And we need somebody a lot of times to come tell us. Someone to come down off the mountain to us and tell us, you're under a deception. That didn't happen at all. That's not where things are at. And then, the, then what Moses says after that's incredible. Then they're going to go through the camp. And he says, whoever is for the Lord, come stand with me. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And doesn't it make you want to feel like standing up and standing with God's people? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And what's so powerful is old failing corrupt, used of the devil, Aaron, walked over to Moses' side. Amen. It wasn't too late. Amen. He swallowed his pride like David did and walked over and stood with his younger brother and said, I'm going with the Lord on this one. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 That's the next thing. Put it in there. Oh God, this is for 